What's up everybody, Jen, ex-dividend investor here. Today in my fifth stock reveal video, I'll be doing an analysis of Travelers Companies, more commonly known as Travelers, which is my 21st largest stock by market value in my dividend portfolio. Please check out the timestamps if you just want to jump to the portfolio section, where I also review the Chevron dividend I've received since last week. That being said, it really helps me if you watch or listen to this whole video, as it took a tremendous amount of effort to put together. I really love Travelers Companies, but not as much as Warren Buffett does. Did you know he has an $871 million stake in Travelers? He owns 2.3% of their outstanding shares. I've not heard too many people mention that yet on YouTube. Keep watching and I'll explain why he loves this company. By the way, I was talking to someone who missed the double meaning of my name and suggested I elaborate in my next video. So here you go. First, I'm part of Generation X, a generation that is known as entrepreneurial, active, happy and achieving a work-life balance. The second meaning of my name is that I'm part of a generation investing in companies that go ex-dividend. You see, in order to receive a dividend payment, you have to purchase shares before a company's ex-dividend date. So I'm an ex-dividend investor. That's my name, Gen X and ex-dividend, Gen X dividend investor. Now there's almost nothing better than dividends in this world. We're out of this world. Speaking of out of this world, did you know that the Travelers Companies offered to insure the Apollo 11 astronauts? I didn't. The year was 1969 and I wasn't born yet, but there was a space race going on between the US and the Soviets to see who could put the first human on the moon. Neil Armstrong estimated he only had a 50% chance of making it to the moon and back and accomplish that world first. Or should I say out of this world first. Needless to say, few life insurers were willing to offer low enough premiums that the Apollo 11 astronauts could actually buy insurance. Now think about this for a second. What company would insure men in a 355-foot rocket ship weighing a half million pounds loaded with flammable jet kerosene fuel that would go 25,000 miles per hour, which, by the way, is the fastest speed a human has ever gone, which would then land on the moon and then fly back a few days later before landing in sea? I think I would poop my pants if I had to go on that mission. Did you know that Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had to wear a fecal containment system, which was basically a diaper? to, you know, do their business up there? I mean, NASA determined that if the Apollo 11 rocket exploded during takeoff, the fireball would be 1,400 feet wide with temperatures up to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit and a shrapnel blast of three miles. That's why NASA seated Vice President Spiro Agnew and former President Lyndon Johnson three and a half miles away from the rocket pad during the Apollo 11 liftoff. Oh. And NASA was apparently barred by law from taking out insurance on the astronauts. So premiums to cover the astronauts were quite spendy back then, and Neil wasn't loaded with cash. He was just a guy earning a wage from the government, which didn't give him enough for life insurance, let alone moon landing insurance. But Travelers Insurance figured out a way to cover them. They offered to insure the Apollo 11 astronauts with premiums being paid for by an oil company and a bank company. But their offer was declined. I'm guessing because NASA didn't want the publicity ramifications. So while insurance was still not taken out on the astronauts, there was an unwritten agreement that NASA would compensate their families if something bad happened. Regardless, Armstrong, Aldrin, and their crewmate Michael Collins decided they wanted to make sure their families would be covered economically. So they came up with an ingenious idea. They signed hundreds of envelopes and postcards then had their friends postmark them July 16th or July 20th, which were the launch and the moon landing date, figuring out that the autographs would be valuable enough to provide their families if they didn't make it back. Who knew that they had a side hustle? 
It turned out to be a pretty smart move because their Apollo 11 memorabilia has sold for as much as $28,000 a piece. NASA actually looked into ensuring the most expensive structure ever built by man, the $75 billion International Space Station. But it turns out no insurance company in the world could cover that much money. Probably not all the insurance companies combined could. It makes sense though. It's a relatively fragile structure sitting in space, surrounded by magnetic storms and solar flares and other space stuff that hurtles by it. Okay, after this video, I've got another 20 more reveals to go until my entire portfolio is shown. Going forward, I'll start sharing dividends received for Disney, Pfizer, Home Depot, Chevron, and Travelers until I start doing monthly portfolio updates, listing all the dividends I've received and any buys or sells that I've done. Now onto business. So what does Travelers do? Travelers is a 155-year-old insurance company and is ranked 106 on the Fortune 500, which is 500 of the largest public U.S. companies by revenue. Travelers has been on the Fortune 500 for the last 25 years. Travelers is ranked 413 on the Fortune Global 500. Travelers has also been on Fortune's World Most Admired Company list for the last 13 years. It has also won multiple awards for its affinity for our men and women in the armed services, including being named Military Friendly Employer from 2007 until now, a Military Friendly Company since last year, and a Military Friendly Brand since 2017. Travelers was in Military Times Magazine and named Best for Vets for seven years and was in the U.S. Veterans Magazine twice for being a top veteran-friendly company. They've been on America's Best Employers list by Forbes from 2015 to 2018, and they are in this year's America's Best Employers for Diversity in Women. This year, they were also voted Employer of the Year by LifeWorks, and they've been in the Best Places to Work list that Glassdoor publishes for the last two years. I love it when companies are treating so many people so well, beyond even those that work for them, and they're getting good financial outcomes. Those are the types of companies I want to invest in especially ones that have been in business since the 1800s. Travelers has offices in every U.S. state as well as operations in Canada, the U.K., Ireland, Brazil, Singapore, and China. Travelers has been an innovator in the insurance industry throughout its corporate life, which began in 1864. You can't say that for many companies in the world. They have over 30,000 employees, 1,300 independent agents and brokers, and they provide commercial and personal property and casualty insurance products and services for, to individuals, businesses, and government units. Travelers has three business segments. Number one, personal insurance, which includes home, auto, and other insurance products for individuals. Number two, business insurance, which includes property and casualty insurance and related services, which covers loss or liability relating to damage to property or people. This is their biggest segment. And number three, bond and specialty insurance, which includes surety, crime, and financial liability businesses, which primarily use credit-based underwriting processes, as well as property and casualty products that are mostly marketed internationally. Travelers is the second largest writer of U.S. commercial property casualty insurance and the third largest writer of U.S. personal insurance. It has been a component of the Dow since 2009. Today I'm going to give you an insurance industry overview, then I'll cover travelers' history, financials, leadership, concerns and risks to be aware of, and answer the question if I feel it's a buy, and then I'll go over my portfolio. Please check the timestamps if you want to jump straight to my portfolio. One of the things I like to look for in a business is longevity and need. That's what I like about property and casualty insurance companies, is that they are covering real 
assets, which I think will be around for a long time, if not forever, and people will probably always need to insure their properties. Let's first start with an overview of the insurance industry. As some of you are aware, insurance was a key catalyst that really helped propel Buffett into stratospheric heights of wealth. He has been involved with insurance in Berkshire Hathaway for over 52 years with his purchase of National Indemnity Company and another small insurer for $8.6 million. And given that Buffett has said that his favorite holding period is forever, it should come as no surprise that National Indemnity is still part of Berkshire Hathaway today and that he still holds it in high regard. So high, in fact, that he told shareholders in 2004 that if Berkshire hadn't acquired National Indemnity, and I quote, Berkshire would be lucky to be worth half of what it is today, end quote. So Buffett loves the insurance business. I'm surprised that you don't hear more about it in the dividend investing community. Buffett has added other insurance companies to Berkshire, including Geico in 1996, General Rhee in 1998, amongst others. Speaking of Buffett, I want to read a relevant excerpt from his annual shareholder letter from 2000 that I feel is integral to know when you are analyzing insurance companies. Our main business, though we have others of great importance, is insurance. To understand Berkshire, therefore, it is necessary that you understand how to evaluate an insurance company. The key determinants are, number one, the amount of float that the business generates, number two, its cost, and number three, most critical of all, the long-term outlook for both of these factors. Begin with, float is money we hold but don't own. In an insurance operation, float arises because premiums are received before losses are paid, an interval that sometimes extends over many years. During that time, the insurer invests the money. This pleasant activity typically comes with a downside. The premiums that an insurer takes in usually do not cover the losses and expenses it eventually must pay. That leaves it running an underwriting loss, which is the cost of float. An insurance business has value if its cost to float over time is less than the cost of the company would otherwise incur to obtain funds. But the business is a lemon if its cost of float is higher than market rates for money. A caution is appropriate here. Because lost costs must be estimated, insurers have enormous latitude in figuring their underwriting results, and that makes it very difficult for investors to calculate a company's true cost of float. Errors of estimation, usually innocent but sometimes not, can be huge. The consequences of these miscalculations flow directly into earnings. An experienced observer can usually detect large-scale errors in reserving, but the general public can typically do no more than accept what's presented, and at times I've been amazed by the numbers that big-name auditors have implicitly blessed. Both the income statements and balance sheets of insurers can be minefields. So let me elaborate. The two main ways that insurance companies get revenue are, number one, they get insurance premiums that their customers pay, pay them for coverage, and this process is basically called underwriting. And number two, they make money from investing their float. So to be a good insurance company means they have to be good at investing and good at underwriting, aka getting their premiums, and probably be a bit lucky that they don't have a series of black swan events under their watch. Insurance companies basically do three things with premiums they get. Number one, they pay out claims. Number two, they cover their expenses to run their business, so salaries and office space and stuff. And number three, they invest it. So ultimately, by investing their premiums, they hope to make more money than they pay in claims. Now let's talk about premiums. The U.S. insurance industry net premiums written totaled $1.2 trillion in 2017, where life annuity accounted for 52% of that $1.2 trillion, 
and premiums by property and casualty insurers was 48%, according to S&P Global Market Intelligence. Here's a chart I got from uh, AAI.org. As you can see, premiums written have increased by 10.8% from 2017 to 2018, the largest jump in the last five years, even though losses haven't gone up by the same percentage. The insurance sector employed about 2.7 million Americans in 2018 and has around $10 trillion under investment, most of which is in bonds. Looking at insurance companies, an observation is that most of them invest their float in low-risk assets like treasuries or conservative corporate bonds. Buffett has used his float to invest in stocks as well as in acquiring other companies. He plays around with over $100 billion of float. That's why companies like Berkshire are often seen as a good investment, because you have someone with Buffett's track record at the helm with an amazing amount of capital that he can leverage to invest. Okay, that insurance industry precursor is helpful because now it should make it easier to understand why there are three important ratios you need to understand that are used in the insurance industry. Number one is the loss ratio, which is the ratio of how much they paid out in claims compared to how much they took in with premiums. So a 60% loss ratio would mean that 60 cents of every dollar they bring in as premiums is paid back in claims. Obviously, the lower the loss ratio, the better for us investors. Travelers have sat between 60 to 70% for years. Number two is the expense ratio, which is the ratio of how much they paid out as expenses running their business compared to how much they took in in premiums. Traveler's expense ratio hovers around 30. Traveler's calls this underwriting expenses. So a 30% expense ratio would mean that 30% of the premiums are used for salaries, office space costs, etc. And number three, the combined ratio, which is the loss ratio combined with the expense ratio, and thus is the one we really care about. If you add the expense ratio and the loss ratio and it's over 100, then it basically means that the insurance company is losing money because it is paying all their premiums out and are still negative. However, we aren't done yet because insurance companies can make money from their investing. That being said, the combined ratio is a quick and simple and not fully accurate way of assessing how good the insurance company is and how effective their management team is. A handy way to estimate the profit margins of an insurance company is just by looking at 100 minus their combined ratio. So if their combined ratio was 95, then that kind of means their profit margins are 5%. In the last 10 years, travelers had only one year where their combined ratio was over 100, which basically means that that year they paid out more for claims and business expenses than they took in. Now, I said simplistic because there's something else you have to factor in to gauge how profitable they really are. You see, travelers also can make money from their investments. Travelers has around $70 billion in insurance reserves, or what Buffett calls the float. This is money they have to keep in reserves in case they have to pay out massive claims. Generally speaking, the larger the company, the larger the float, which means the more they are investing. So travelers invest this float, and then that is also added to profits. So even when the combined ratio is over 100, they could still be making money due to their investment profits. Much of their float is held in municipal bonds. Munis are often issued by local government and are generally used to finance public projects such as roads, schools, and airports. Munis are considered very conservative investments, so it's something travelers feels they can count on. So if they wanted, they could go riskier with their investments and get a bigger return, potentially. Let's look at some of travelers' property and casualty insurance competitors. Here's a nice chart from Investopedia. 
Travelers is at $24.5 billion for net premiums written last year, and Progressive is at $27 billion, then Liberty Mutual at $28.6 billion, and then Allstate at $30.6 billion. Allstate has about 25% more net premiums written than Travelers, so they are bigger but are still in the same ballpark. So for this video, I'll use Allstate as a key competitor we can compare Travelers against. Okay, which is better between Travelers and Allstate? Let's dig deeper into things to see if we can answer that. I found this YouTube blurb from The Motley Fool that was recorded in October of 2018 and is one of their analysts who used to work at Travelers, and I thought it was informative. In the job that I left was with Travelers Insurance. So I worked with Travelers for a year, uh, and it was, it was a, a good job. It offered me a lot of opportunity to move up in the company, but I made the joke that when I left, the stock was somewhere around $50. Now it's around $125. It had peaked around $150. But the bottom line was I felt like I left the company in really good shape. And of course, that was a joke because I didn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, but I do think this is a very good business, and I'm surprised it's always flown under the radar of, of our services here because the fact of the matter is, if you invested in Travelers a decade ago and you held on to those shares, you would be extremely happy. And I think that that is because the company is very focused on making sure they do right by their customers. Uh, I, when I was there, they had a very uh, core, their core philosophy was pay what we owe and let's move on. They tried to reduce and eliminate as many of those frictional costs uh, as possible when it comes to insurance. And one of the big ones is subrogation, when you have claims that are disputed and they go further down the line to uh, lawyers and insurance companies battling each other. So, so to me, uh, you know, that's a one-two punch there that, that makes it pretty compelling uh, from the investor's perspective. Net premiums grew 6%. Uh, the, the combined ratio is, is still performing very well uh, this year. The the combined the the underlying combined ratio is ninety three percent. We always like to see that low number under one hundred. That means they're writing good business. Uh, so to me, there were a lot of good reasons to uh, be optimistic about travelers, and I think investors and travelers today could could feel comfortable holding those shares, knowing this is a well run business that should continue to perform well for some time to come. It's always interesting to hear from people who have worked on the inside at a company and whom no longer hold a financial stake in it. Okay, now let's understand how Traveler came into existence. Travelers was founded in 1864 by James Batterson, a stonecutter, and by James Bolter, a local banker. Batterson is attributed with introducing casualty insurance to the United States, for which he was inducted into the Insurance Hall of Fame many years after he died. Bolter had heard that Batterson was organizing a new company to introduce accident insurance to the United States. The story goes that Bolter asked Batterson how much he would charge to insure him for his four-block walk home. Two cents, Batterson said, and that exchange started their eventual partnership. There was another company that was integral to Traveler's success. In 1855, Alexander Wilkin and 16 other businessmen from Minnesota established the St. Paul Fire and Marine Insurance Company after recognizing the need for an insurance company that could deal with the increasing threat of fire. Paul Fire and Marine and Travelers merged in 2004 to form the St. Paul Travelers Companies and was one of the largest property and casualty insurers and financial services firms. In 2007, they rebranded to the Travelers Companies. Travelers had innovation in their DNA from day one. They have had tremendous influence on the insurance industry and they have had a slew of industry firsts under their belt, including in 1864, they introduced accident insurance which was a first. In 1884, they introduced a retirement income contract. 
That was a first. In 1892, they introduced double indemnity, another first. In 1897, they issued an automobile insurance policy, the first one ever written. In 1903, they opened a school to train insurance agents, also a first. In 1904, they were the first to offer a clause providing waiver of life insurance premium payments in the event of total and permanent disability. In 1919, they were the first to offer aircraft liability insurance. In 1958, they offered women life insurance at lower rates than men, also a first. In 1961, they introduced a new coverage option for electronic data processing as the kind of computer industry came along, so that was a first. And as I mentioned, in 1969, they issued accident policies for Apollo 2 space flight and lunar exploration. Well, they offered it. It wasn't accepted. In 1980, they installed an interactive company insurance agency computer system. In 1997, they launched an, ins an insurance policy to protect in individuals who use personal computers for online banking. And in 2006, they offered a discount nationally to drivers of hybrid vehicles. All of those industry firsts. So as you can see, they've been innovators for over a century. Let's look deeper into Travelers. Now, they aren't one of the world's most powerful brands per Forbes 2019 list, but the umbrella is still a fairly recognizable brand. Here's some insights into Travelers' strategies from their annual presentation. These are number one, achieve further pr productivity and efficiency gains, which they've been accomplishing by a variety of means, including centralizing the underwriting of less complex accounts. Number two, create opportunities to write more business through retaining and growing their relationships with their high quality accounts. Number three, seek appropriate risk adjusted investment returns by number one, leveraging their competitive advantages. Number two, generating earnings and capital substantially in excess of their growth needs. Number three, thoughtfully right-sizing capital. And finally, number four, growing book value per share over time. They launched a new sustainability website, which gives us insights into the 16 key drivers of sustained value for travelers. Those are business strategy and competitive advantages, capital and risk management, climate strategy, community, customer experience, data privacy and cybersecurity, disaster preparedness and response, diversity and inclusion, eco-efficient operations, ethics and values, governance, human capital management, innovation, investment management, public policy, safety and health. Now let's dive into some financials. There are three main things that I like to look for when analyzing a business. Number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? And number three, do they have too much debt? For insurance companies, there are some other metrics I like to review, and they are number four, return on equity, number five, price to book, and number six, return on assets. Let's start with number one, is the company growing? Now, there are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And those are, number one, is revenue growing, which is on the income statement? Number two, are earnings growing, also on the income statement? Number three, is equity growing on the balance sheet? Number four, is operating cash flow growing? on the cash flow statement. Number five is the dividend growing consistently over a decent period of time, usually found on their website. And number six is the stock price growing over a decent period of time. So number one of six is revenue growing. Let's check out their financial metrics using macrotrends.net. Here we see the traveler's annual revenue for 2018 was 30.2 billion, a 4.8% increase from 2017. Their annual revenue for 2017 was 28.9 billion, which was a 4.6% increase from 2016. And their annual revenue for 2016 was 27.6 billion, a 3% increase over 2015. 
When we look at Allstate, we see that annual revenue for 2018 was $39.8 a 1% increase from 2017. Their annual revenue for 2017 was $39.4 a 5.4% increase from 2016. And finally, for 2016, it was $37.4 a 5% increase from 2015. For big established companies, like the ones I invest in, while I'd love to see 5-10% to growth, that sometimes isn't realistic, so just seeing positive numbers can still be good. Here we see approximately similar growth between the two companies, but Travelers have been increasing each year for the last three years, while Allstate has not. So Travelers has the edge here. Number two of six are earnings growing. Let's look at Travelers' net income trending over time and compare them to Allstate. Here we see that Travelers' annual net income for 2018 was $2.5 billion, a 22.68% increase from 2017. Their net income for 2017 was $2.04 billion, a 31.78% decline from 2016. And their net income for 2016 was $2.99 billion, a 12.36% decline from 2015. Allstate's annual net income for 2018 was $2.1 billion, a 31.53% decline from 2017. Their net income for 2017 was $3.07 billion, a 74.5% increase from 2016. And their net income for 2016 was $1.76 billion, a 14.31% decline from 2015. I'd obviously prefer to see a trend of continually increasing net income, but travelers turned things around at least in 2018. Net income was impacted negatively in those down years because of paying out big claims on catastrophic events. Now to really understand how significant investing is for insurance, let's dive a bit deeper into understanding their income. Here is net income by major component and combined ratio from the Traveler's uh, Q2 uh, presentation. Their combined ratio was an increase from the prior year quarter due to higher non-catastrophe weather-related losses. And we see that their investment income is such a large portion of their income, it helps explain why Buffett loves insurance so much. It's because insurance companies invest so much, which is Buffett's favorite activity. Well, that and they make the kind of money that Buffett likes, of course. Digging into their investments, we see from their Q2 results that Travelers has the majority of their investment assets in very conservative fixed income investments. They're getting less than 3% yield. Given that many of their investments are in conservative vehicles, Companies like Travelers could take a larger portion of their float and invest in more aggressive equities for even higher returns. But it's understandable that they want a bigger guarantee of returns and coverage for their potential claims payouts. Looking deeper into earnings from their Q2 report, we see that the second quarter year-to-date results for 2019 as compared to the same period in 2018. We see a 2019 loss ratio of 68.6 and a combined ratio of 99.6, which is getting up there. We also see a useful breakdown of their premiums, with the majority coming from the U.S. market, and I love seeing the diversification of about 7% of their net written premiums coming from international markets. Okay, number three of six is equity growing. We see that both Travelers and Allstate are buying back a lot of shares. Watch my Home Depot video for an in-depth explanation as to why shareholders' equity can be such an interesting metric. The summary is that when a company is doing significant share buybacks, it can lead to decreased shareholders' equity, even negative shareholders' equity. If a company is doing buybacks, it means there are fewer shares outstanding, and shareholders then own more of the company. I personally still like to see a positive shareholders' equity, which we see here. I'm now going to introduce a new metric to you folks, earnings per share. Earnings per share, or EPS, 
measures how much profit a company has generated per outstanding share of common stock. It's calculated by taking the difference between a company's net income and dividends paid for preferred stock and then dividing that by the average number of shares outstanding. I'll do a quick example. Let's say my company has a net income of $40 million and I paid out $4 million in dividends to preferred stockholders. Let's say I had 20 million shares outstanding in the first part of a quarter and then 24 million in the second part of a quarter for an average of 22 million shares outstanding. So EPS would be $1.63 a share. That's basic EPS, but you can also look at diluted EPS, which also factors in all convertible securities. We care about earnings per share because high EPS often means more money is available to either invest in the business or distribute back to us in the form of dividend payments. But, and like I've always said, there's almost always a but, since companies can do buybacks which improve their EPS, i.e. the denominator is decreasing, EPS can potentially manipulate some investors into thinking that a company is doing better than they actually are. Also, EPS doesn't factor in things like debt. It also doesn't consider how much capital is used to make its earnings per share happen. So if we have two companies and they have the same earnings per share, but one of them used way less capital to make their EPS, then that one is probably better at managing its resources than the other. That's why it's helpful to dig into a variety of metrics so that it paints a better picture as to what's going on in the company. Okay, now on to number four of six, is operating cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Since we just talked about EPS and some of its pros and cons, let's evolve our cash flow metrics and look at cash flow per share. Free cash flow per share is a measure of how much cash per share a business generates after accounting for capex like equipment or buildings. So free cash flow per share equals free cash flow divided by shares of common stock outstanding, where free cash flow equals operating cash flow minus capex. Free cash flow is really useful, even more so than earnings per share. Cash flow per share is thought to be a better measure of a company's financial flexibility because it is difficult to manipulate it through accounting tricks. Cash is king, as we all know, as it helps companies expand, develop new products, buy back stock, pay dividends, or reduce debt, and cash flow gives us insights into a company's cash-generating engine. Now let's compare Traveler's free cash flow per share to Allstate's. Here we see both insurance companies with a similar trend in free cash flow per share, with Traveler's having the edge. Okay, now let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing consistently. Here we see that Travelers has been increasing the dividend for 14 years, and Allstate has for eight. That's how far back the data was on their website. So advantage Travelers. We also see that Allstate cut their dividend in half in 2009 during the big financial crisis. By the way, I listed PEs in this chart, as so that is one of my default metrics in my spreadsheet, but I don't feel like it's the best metrics to use to value insurance companies, and I'll explain why later in my analysis. Now, Traveler's yield today is a little over 2% compared to Allstate's, which is a little under 2%, so advantage Traveler's. Traveler's has a 10-year dividend compound annual growth rate of 10.4%, which is awesome, while Allstate is only at 5.1%, so big advantage to Traveler's. At 15 years, we see Traveler's yield on costs at 9.9% and Allstate's at 10.76%. At 20 years, it becomes really compelling where we see that Traveler's potential yield on cost is 16.58% and Allstate is at 19.21%. And then it just goes into crazyville at 30 years and beyond. So there we see Allstate has an advantage. The type of dividend growth I like to see varies by industry. 
So whereas for energy companies and utilities, I expect to see something around 4%. If I had to genericize it, then I want to see a 7 or 8% for any random company. So I really like Traveler's 10-year compound annual growth rate of 10.4%, much more than Allstate's 5.1%. Finally, number six of six is the stock price growing over a decent period of time to help us answer the question, is a company growing? Let's look at Travelers compared to the S&P 500 and Travelers compared to Allstate. Few subs asked me about my modeling tool for my Chevron video. That was something I just did in Google Spreadsheets. But there is a total returns calculator I found which seemingly accomplishes a similar function at dividendchannel.com under the calculator tab called a drip returns calculator. So let's just use that, even though I didn't verify it if they're doing it accurately. We will do a total returns estimate to see what would happen if we invested 10K in 2005 in Travelers, the S&P 500, and Allstate, and see what that 10K would have turned into after approximately 15 years. So first let's look at Travelers compared to SPY. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K into Traveler and the S&P 500 in 2005. You can see the Travelers in black significantly outperformed the S&P 500. With reinvesting dividends, your 10K would have grown to 55K with Travelers versus to 33K with SPY. That's a 458% total return for Travelers as compared to a 231% return for the S&P 500. Without dividends reinvested, we see that Travelers would have ended at 46.6K versus the S&P 500 at 29K. Now let's look at Travelers compared to Allstate. Here we see that Travelers significantly outperforms Allstate. Allstate ends up at 29K if they reinvest dividends compared to Travelers at 56K. So we see that Travelers almost doubles the returns of Allstate. And if you didn't reinvest dividends, then Allstate ends at 24K compared to Travelers, which again almost has a double return of what Allstate would have been at. So the clear winner is Travelers. Okay, now onto the number two main item I like to look at when I'm analyzing a business. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? So when analyzing a business, I like to understand if, if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I use the current ratio to determine that. It's important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. Let's look at macro trends, which has created some nice graphs of current ratio over time. Here we see the Travelers is at 0.32 and Allstate's at 0.22. The higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. All other things being equal, creditors consider a high current ratio to be better than a low current ratio. Both are within normal industry ranges. Number three. Okay, the final item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Let's use what Macrotrends has. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. You also might want to do a modified debt to equity via taking out the negative impacts of treasury stock. High treasury stock can skew a strong balance sheet to look weak. Financial stocks that borrow money to lend money tend to have higher debt to equity ratios. Sectors that utilize capital extensively, like utilities, also tend to have higher debt to equity ratios. So you can use the ratio to compare similar companies in similar industries. Buffett has said he likes under a 0.5 here, and we see that Travelers is at 0.26 and Allstate is at 0.29 for their 2018 debt to equity ratio. So both Travelers and Allstate look within appropriate range for an insurance company. Let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. From macro trends, we see that Travelers EBIT for the 12 months ending June 30, 2019 was 3.53 billion, a 19.55% increase year over year. 
For 2018, their annual EBIT was $3.31 billion, a 6.91% increase from 2017. For 2017, their annual EBIT was $3.09 billion, a 29.8% decline from 2016. And for 2016, their annual EBIT was $4.41 billion, a 13.63% decline from 2015. Now, Allstate's EBIT for the 12 months ending June 30th of 2019 was $3.672 billion, a 21.92% decline year-over-year. Allstate's 2018 annual EBIT was $3.15 billion, a 25.58% decline from 2017. Their 2017 annual EBIT was $4.41 billion, which was a 43.62% increase from 2016. And their 2016 annual EBIT was $3.07 billion, a 14.85% decline from 2015. Market Trend calcs EBIT for us at $3.53 billion in 2018 for travelers and interest at $352 million. We see all states' EBIT is $6.72 billion and interest is at $332 million. We want to see EBIT that's greater than or equal to three times the net interest, and we see that both these companies are over that, which implies that their interest payments are covered. Number four, return on equity. Okay, now that we're getting more versed with financial metrics, I want to introduce another key one to understand, and that's return on equity, or ROE. Return on equity and return on asset ratios are both known as profitability ratios as they indicate the level of profit generated by a business. They both gauge a company's ability to generate earnings from its investments, but they don't exactly represent the same thing. Together, however, they provide a clearer understanding of a company's performance. Return on equity measures how much a business earns with respect to the amount of equity that was put in the business. It tells us how effectively a company's management team uses investors' money. So it shows us whether management is growing the company's value at an acceptable rate. Return on equity, calculated from metrics on the income statement, is net income divided by total equity. So ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. Let's check ROEs from macro trends. Here we see that Travelers is at 11.22 as compared to Allstate's 10.9, so reasonably close, but with Travelers edging Allstate. That being said, I'd like to see something more like 15% to 22% for insurance companies. A higher ROE means that a business is doing really well since they are able to generate a high amount of profit given a particular level of investments in the form of equity. The higher the ROE, the better, and we see Travelers is generally trending upwards the last few quarters. But they are both a bit light for what would get me excited. We also see from Guru Focus that Travelers is ranked higher than 62% of the 89 companies in the property and casualty insurance sector, and Allstate is ranked 61% higher in terms of ROE, so a slight edge to Travelers. Here's an important breakdown from the Q2 report of how their ROE breakdown has trended over the years. Looking at 2019, we see that they have an 11.1% ROE, and 3.3% comes from underwriting premiums, and 7.8% comes from investment. ROE is also properly calculated using DuPont analysis, which is a combination of four ratios which helps in identifying which metric is resulting in the increase or decrease of ROE. So the DuPont formula, derived by DuPont Corporation in 1920, calculates return on equity by using profit margins, total asset turnover, and the leverage factor, and is used to identify how a company is generating its return on shareholders' equity. So ROE equals profit margin times total asset turnover times leverage factor, where profit margin equals net income over revenues, and total asset turnover equals revenues divided by total assets, and leverage factor, which is the equity multiplier, equals total assets divided by shareholders' equity. What's neat about the DuPont formula is that when we multiply these three, we effectively get net income divided by shareholders' equity. 
However, if we look at each, there are four key things we can learn. Number one, we'll get to know the profitability of the company. Number two, we'll be able to understand how efficiently the company has been utilizing its assets. Number three, we will understand how much leverage a company has been getting. And number four, we will understand the return on equity overall. So the DuPont formula tells us how efficiently a company is utilizing its resources and how leveraged it is. Okay, now onto price to book or P2B. Insurance companies are often valued based on their price to book or P2B ratio. I mentioned this after ROE because ROE has the largest effect on the P2B ratio. Price to book is calculated by dividing a company's stock price by its book value per share, which is defined as its total assets minus any liabilities. So we can calculate it manually or just look it up on macro trends. Let's use macro trends. So generally speaking, companies are worth buying at a price to book closer to one, and when they get to two or more, they're expensive. The insurance industry average is around 1.4. So we see that the travel is at a 1.5 price to book and Allstate is at a 1.43, pretty in line with one another but they've both been getting a bit spendy relative to their book values. Finally, let's check out return on assets to see how efficiently travelers in Allstate are squeezing profit from their assets. ROA is a different metric I've previously mentioned, which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what we're looking for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Let's use macrotrends.net. Here we see the traveler's ROA is most recently at 2.51 and all states is at 2.2%. Brewer Focus tells us that Travelers is ranked higher than 54% of its competitors when it comes to ROI, and Allstate is ranked higher than 51% of its competitors, so Travelers takes it here. Okay, let's move from their financials to community involvement and charitable giving. Travelers has a strong record of giving. Over the last 10 years, they've contributed more than $218 million towards important causes. And over the last two years, their employees have volunteered for more than 250,000 hours doing things such as building 51 homes with Habitat for Humanity, teaching basic economics to younger school kids, which is something near and dear to my heart, building playgrounds in multiple states, and donating to causes such as United Way. They've given millions to support educational initiatives. Travelers has been helping to increase the number of underrepresented students who complete bachelor's degrees for more than 10 years. Okay, let's move to their leadership. I'm gonna quickly review a few of their key positions. Interestingly, they've combined their CTO and COO position, something I don't see too often. Looking at the top execs, the average tenure is around nine years, which is a good amount of time, especially considering Mojgan Lefebvre, their CTO COO, just joined a year ago. The longer the tenure, the better in my eyes, as it shows their passion and ability, because they aren't needing to work for a paycheck at that point. For reference, the average tenure for a C-level exec is around five years in most companies. I did a quick check on their backgrounds and nothing was disconcerting. Travelers CEO is Alan Schnitzer, who joined in November of 2015. One observation I had after re reviewing their ex executive team is that they are heavily invested into tech and innovation. For example, they have Michael Klein, who is their president of personal insurance and head of enterprise business intelligence and analytics, but he isn't their CTO. That role belongs to Mojgan Lefebvre, who is their Chief Technology and Operations Officer. But they also have Kevin Smith, who is their Chief Innovation Officer. Normally companies have one person leading tech, which often has business intelligence encompassed in it. So it's fascinating to see that they have three leaders spanning various aspects of innovation and technology. I'd imagine they're a very data-driven analytics company, along with having innovation as part of their DNA, which is great. 
I looked up Kevin's LinkedIn profile and it mentioned that he's responsible for partnering with the businesses and functions across Travelers to drive innovation strategies and priorities company-wide. He also chairs their Innovation Council, which is tasked with accelerating and maximizing the impact of innovation at Travelers. He started as a software engineer 37 years ago and worked his way all the way up. Now they have one other role which is rare to have in most companies. Last month they created a new position called a Chief Sustainability Officer and Yafi Kohn took that job. She will lead Traveler's environmental, social, and governance efforts, also known as ESG. Their CEO recently said, Deeply rooted in our culture is the recognition that industry-leading results are inextricably linked with gratified customers and business partners, engaged employees, and healthy communities. A chief sustainability officer will enable us to deepen the sophistication of our sustainability efforts, tell our story more effectively, and engage more broadly as a thought leader in the related and evolving public policy dialogue. Now, a good data point to gauge how a CEO has performed is to check the stock performance that's been joined. Here we see Travelers in black, SPY in blue, and Allstate in purple. Travelers has slightly underperformed the S&P 500 by about 15%, and Allstate has outperformed both significantly during the last few years. So Allstate takes it for the last few years. Okay, let's review some concerns and risks you should be aware of. There are a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like Travelers, and I'll cover some of them. Obviously, if there is a big uptick in catastrophic losses, then they could be negatively impacted, especially if they are black swan type events of magnitude. For example, really extreme weather conditions that could obviously impact travelers. Changes in the legal, regulatory, and economic environments in which they operate could also negatively impact travelers. Given that so much of their revenue is from investments, then a prolonged recession or similar event could negatively impact them. Separately, I wonder if insurance companies focus too much on investments and should put a bit more attention to improving their underwriting, though I guess it's understandable to focus on where they've learned gives them the best returns. It's also important to understand that the company's investment portfolio is subject to credit and interest rate risks. They could be impacted to environmental claims and litigation, such as claims due to exposure to asbestos. Foreign currency exchange fluctuations could also impact travelers. Risks and uncertainties associated with Brexit could impact travelers. Loss or significant restrictions on the use of particular types of underwriting criteria, such as credit scoring, could reduce the company's future profitability. So just a slew of different risks you might want to consider. Finally, travelers faces competitive threats from other insurance companies, all of which are looking to outperform them, get better talent, acquire better assets, and make better deals. So, big question, is it worth buying at this price? Let's look at a discounted cash flow calculator on Guru Focus to see what they say is a fair price for both Travelers and Allstate. According to discounted cash flow, they are both a bit overpriced. Travelers' tangible book value based on this estimate is about $124 versus today's share price of around $146. Allstate's DCF is $81.76 compared to today's share price of about $106. So, how about we look at price to earnings ratios? Well, we're not gonna do that. A logical question is why aren't I looking at price to earnings to value travelers in Allstate? Well, the reason I'm not is because property and casualty insurance companies have a significant amount of assets on their balance sheet that are needed to underwrite insurance contracts. They usually have lots of cash from premium payments going along with their investments. Since there's some time between when premiums are paid and when claims get paid out, the insurance company gets to hold that cash temporarily, booked as a liability due to needing it for future claims. As I've mentioned, that money is the float. This float is then often invested when the premiums are stable or growing. If the insurance company is making money from its investments, these aren't reported as earnings, 
and thus that would be missed out if you use price to earnings to value them. That is why I'm looking at price to book and not price to earnings. I'd already stated that the insurance industry average for price to book is 1.4. Using 1.4, we get a price of $123 for travelers, which is $88 times 1.4. However, with a book per value share of $97.26 and a tangible book value per common share of $73, the company trades at 1.5 to 2 times book. I would find it more attractive at 1.2 book. Travelers has grown their book value per share at an average annual rate of 7% over the last 10 years and has returned more than $34 billion of capital to shareholders through dividends and share repurchases. In the last decade, they grew dividends per share at an average annual rate of 10%. That is ridiculously impressive. But to me, they are a bit spendy. Personally, I would be looking to add more to my position if it were under $120, but that's just me. Another option to consider would be a 1.2 book, like I mentioned, instead of a 1.4, which would give you a nice margin of safety. $110 a share would be a good bet for me. That being said, my personality type has led me to usually invest at a decent price, not an awesome one, and that strategy has paid off for me over the years. So something to consider when you are looking at your own risk tolerances and price points. I'd like to give you some education to the best of my abilities, and then you need to double check all of it and then ultimately do what's right for you. I think there's a good chance travelers will become a dividend aristocrat in about a decade, assuming these trends continue. So remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and you're responsible to determine what actions you take in your portfolio, such as buying and selling, etc. When I take everything into consideration, I feel that travelers is a better investment than Allstate for me. And if the price pulls back, then I'll potentially look to add more. Ultimately, though, you need to make your own call on it. Thanks! Okay, here we are in the portfolio, and we see that Travelers is my latest position at 149.8 shares. And I'll kind of go over the Chevron dividend a little bit, but it took us up to 174.99 shares, so this rounds up to 175.0. We see today Travelers is a little bit in the green. In the last 365 days, it has gone up. All right, it's in the financials industry. See right now what the portfolio overall allocation looks like. Well, slowly growing sizes as the portfolios get bigger. They have a $3.28 dividend and the upcoming payout date is on September 30th. Today's yield is 2.23%. Now the three-year dividend compound growth rate for travelers is 8.4%. Its five-year dividend compound growth rate is 9.3%. And then I had a sub ask me if I could add the 10-year compound growth rate to my spreadsheet. So here it is, and it's at 10.4%. Manually, I also calculate the five-year dividend compound growth rate, whereas these I just pull from uh, websites, and it's at 10.85%. So you can see they're pretty close. And again, it has to do with timing, what the dividend is when you do the calculation. But I kind of do it as to just sniff test things. The average weighted dividend yield for the portfolio is, or starting yield for the portfolio is 2.77%. And it has an obscene 12% growth rate for the five-year dividend compound annual growth rate. So that's what I love to see is very conservative to start but then huge increases to their dividend. Market value for travelers is $22,034, so it brings the market value so far of the portfolio to 97265 
The passive income that Traveler strips every year is $491. And so the overall passive income that these five stocks are generating are $2,691 a year. Payout ratio safe at 31%. And on their website, I found 14 years of dividend data and all of them were consecutive increases. So they are headed well on their way. And we see that the average weighted years of increasing dividends for the portfolio is 14.55. And we see the average weighted beta for the portfolio is now at 0.93. Market cap for travelers is 38 billion, so smallest company I have so far. And we see that the average weighted market cap for the portfolio is 189.87 billion. Now let's go on to the dividends that we received since my last video. So this is a screenshot of my dividend payment email that E-Trade sent me last, actually this week. It shows that Chevron paid me a quarterly dividend check for $206.24. I blocked out my account number. And you get these emails shortly after midnight of the day they pay out. And also when you log into the E-Trade desktop app, they have a notification icon that lights up to tell you that something interesting happened to your account, which in this case is the dividend payment. Since it's in a drip, it bought 1.7 more shares of Chevron, taking me from 173.3 shares up to 174.999 shares, which then gets rounded on my spreadsheet to 175.0. Those additional shares took the Chevron contribution of my annual passive income from $825 a year up to $833 a year. So this Chevron dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $8 a year just for this quarter. Thus, you can easily infer that each year I hold Chevron in my brokerage, it will increase my passive income by over $32 cumulatively every year, which should continuously increase as it compounds itself and as they increase their dividend. Not bad for doing nothing other than owning an asset and sitting on my rear. So if we look at an edited copy of my dividends, as I said, I've blacked out some things and I've deleted some rows, so I'm only showing September, since I track my dividends on a monthly basis, a quarterly basis, on an annual basis, I've, I've deleted all the other dividends that I might be getting paid in September. I'm only showing the ones I've done a reveal for. And we see the Traveler's dividend is coming on September 30th, so in about two weeks. Home Depot's coming in a few days from the day I'm filming this. And here's the $206.24 I got from Chevron. So that combined with the Pfizer one I got last week, takes me up to so far $367.65 for these two stocks that I'm showing. And then I'm blacking out these other areas of information. And then over time, I'll, I'll show more of that as I reveal other stocks. And then quarterly, I blacked out again the stocks you can't see. And here we're showing Travelers, Chevron, Pfizer, Walt Disney, Home Depot. We see that so far we've gotten the payments for, here's the $206.24 from Chevron we just got, and the Pfizer payment we received from before. That over time, I'll keep uh, revealing more of this. All right. Thanks, everybody. 
I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risks. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons and share this with others.